Uh, so again, thank you for, uh, for being here. I'm incredibly grateful for uh, your participation and for you joining in with us today. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just talked about how your power rose Jesus from the grave and how you live in us. And uh, we want to recognize at the very beginning of this time of looking at the Bible and listening to, for your message to us that we are totally dependent on you. This is not a mere mental exercise. We aren't simply trying to figure something out with our minds. We want to hear your voice with our spirits. So speak to us. And help us to hear with ears that really hear and respond with a loud yes to whatever you ask us to do. Amen. Well, today, this is the fifth uh, part in our series called Big Faith. Uh, Big Faith believes that God is who he says he is and that he can do everything he's promised to do. Uh, Big Faith is a big deal for Jesus because uh, from the very beginning, well, not from the very beginning, from shortly after the beginning, uh, faith, trust, belief in and loyalty to God was destroyed by Adam and Eve's rebellion and from the rebellion that we've all fallen into, that we've all followed suit with. Big faith was devastated in the Garden of Eden because the, the, the snake came and was dishonest. He was dishonest about God. He was dishonest about who we could be as human beings. And he was certainly dishonest about how disobedience to God would, actually, would work in our lives. He, would actually, he actually had the audacity to say that the best way to be like God is to do what God tells you not to do. Now that seems strange when I say it like that, but the truth of the matter is we have all acted like that whether we want to admit it or not. The moment we begin to say, I'm going to do what I think is right, without consulting God to find out what God thinks is right, we have decided that we can be like him by doing what we want to do, whether he has any input or not. So the, the snake lied, his, his, his dishonesty warped Adam and Eve's view of God and has warped our view of God. And so they distrusted God and we distrust. Basically, he told them, God lied to you. God's a liar. God's out to try to control you and to keep you under his thumb and to keep you from being all that he created you to be, um, which is weird. But they believed it. So they distrusted God and they disobeyed God. They just did whatever they, God said, don't do this, so they did that. And so we have been following them in the same suit, and uh, we've uh, really messed the world up. Yeah, can't tell that. <sighs> Never mind. I, on the flip side, God began immediately following the, the, the disobedience, the distrust 
and that dishonesty that, that was part of that fall of Adam and Eve, God began working immediately and it continues to work to restore our trust in him. Um, it's, it's, it's what he does. Uh, he tries to reveal the truth about himself to us. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The ultimate revelation of who God is is in Jesus. If, as we read, early, heard, read earlier, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you look at Jesus, you know exactly what our Heavenly Father's like. You know exactly what God is like. Uh, so he's been revealing the truth to us. And when we believe the truth about who God is, we begin to trust him. Because how can you not trust somebody who loves you enough to literally die for you? Not just to figuratively go, yeah, I would die for you because, you know, I really care about you. No, they, he literally died for us and rose again. How can you not trust somebody that? And when we trust him, his Holy Spirit begins a transformation in us that starts on the inside and changes us. And that trust begins to grow. The more we walk with him, the more we follow Jesus, the more we trust him. There are five things that Jesus uses to grow big faith that we've been talking about. Uh, practical teaching. That's teaching about what the Bible says. It helps us to understand it that is practical and that we put into practice. Uh, there are providential relationships, the relationships we have with people that God has brought into our lives that helps us follow Jesus. There are private disciplines like prayer, Bible study we've talked about. Uh, the fourth one is personal ministry. We're going to talk about that one today. And then we're saving one more called pivotal circumstances for uh, next week. Uh, there is an event in Jesus' life. There are several events in Jesus' life. But this one today that we're going to talk about uh, is a really good illustration of how Jesus used personal ministry to stretch and to build big faith in his first followers and how he wants to do the same for us. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 10. So if you want to find that uh, in, in your Bibles or on your apps, you can look for that. I'm going to give you the backstory real quick. Since we're jumping into the middle of Luke chapter 9, I'm going to tell you what happened beforehand. At the very beginning of Luke chapter 9, Jesus called uh, his 12 closest disciples aside. Um, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out two by two. And they departed and they went throughout all the villages around where they were and they were announcing, they were preaching and proclaiming that God's kingdom had come and they healed people all over the place. And that brings us to Luke chapter 9, verse 10. When the apostles returned from their trip that Jesus sent them on, they reported to Jesus what it, they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew uh, by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them. And spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. 
So I'm pause just for a moment. Do you remember what the apostles went out and did? They announced that God's kingdom was, had arrived. And they healed all kinds of people everywhere. And now look what Jesus is doing. His crowd shows up. He talks to them about the kingdom of God and heals those who need healing. The apostles did what Jesus did. And Jesus did what the apostles did. You need to understand that before we go any further. All right? This crowd has shown up when they were trying to get away to rest. And late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. And Jesus replied, You give them something to eat. Now, two reasons that Jesus must have said this. There are two reasons that I can think of. Uh, Two reasons for Jesus to say, you give them something to eat. Uh, The first reason is the people were hungry. The people really were hungry. And so on this count, by the way, the disciples noticed the need. They noticed that these people were hungry. And they brought the need to Jesus. And so let's just be, if we're going to grade them, we're going to give them an A+. They noticed a need, and they brought the need to Jesus. But the second reason that I think Jesus told the disciples, you give them something to eat, is the disciples' faith in Jesus needed to grow because he planned on turning all of his work over to them. So this is something I want you to get a hold of. Even when Jesus' disciples do A-plus work, there's still room for growth. If you are still breathing in this world, as a follower of Jesus, there's still room for growth. I'm not sure. There's, a, there's debate as what happens after the resurrection. I don't know about that. I haven't been there yet. But right now, I know that if we are li- living and breathing and following Jesus, there's room for growth. No matter how well we have been doing, even if we're scoring A pluses, so to speak, there's always room to grow. And that's why Jesus turned to his disciples who had been healing people and who had been preaching just like he was and said to them, you give them something to eat. Jesus says the same thing to us. Well, something similar. He says to us, you meet the needs of the people around you. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment. When I say, uh, when he said, uh, you and me, when I say you and me, I mean those of us who seek to be committed Jesus followers. So just for a moment, 
if, if you're still in the process of asking questions and exploring what it means to follow Jesus and you really haven't committed your life to following him, you can sit back and listen while I talk to the rest of us and just get a hint of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So uh, for those who are still asking questions, this is an opportunity for you to get some answers to what it means to follow Jesus. And for those of us who are committed followers of Jesus, this is an opportunity for us to find out exactly what we're supposed to be about. Amen, Pastor. I think that's good. Let's keep it up. All right. Let's keep it up. So here's my experience. Jesus has been working in my life, and he has been calling me in the last couple of years in particular to find ways to build bridges, to meet people in the community. This is one of the shockers. I want you to understand. This is one of the shockers of being a pastor. Nobody. Yep. Nobody comes looking for me. Nobody. Okay, except for the people who want gas in their car. Then they'll stop by the church and ask for, for gas money or food or something. Uh, but, but nobody comes to me and says something along the lines of, I want to know Jesus. Will you help me? I have never had that happen. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. I'm not saying it will never happen. I'm just saying it has not happened yet at this point. Uh, and then when I looked at what Jesus said in the Great Commission, go, that's the first word, go, I realized that perhaps I had the wrong model. So he's been calling me to find ways to go out into the community and meet people who are not part of God's family and part of his kingdom and to build relationships with them and to build a bridge that they can cross to come into God's kingdom and into his family. Now, that can be pretty daunting, as some of you already noted. This is my birthday, and I am older than I was yesterday. And I'm several years older than I was when I first moved to this town. Uh, one, of my, one of my mentors is a man named Bob Beal. He's from, uh, a graduate of one of our great Michigan universities, by the way. I just thought I'd throw that out there for those of you who cheer for Michigan universities. I'm not going to tell you which one because some of you would be upset. Uh, so, uh, but he, he, he wrote this. Uh, he's, 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 uh, he's older than I am. So I'm going to trust that he's got words of wisdom for, for me and for many of us. He says the single most productive decade of your life is typically your 60s. That feels good. There's hope for me. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm looking for this time in my life to be the most productive time of my life, in particular, as Jesus calls me to building relationships and bridges for people who don't know him to cross as they enter into God's kingdom. Now, uh, what about you? What's stirring up your compassion? What's stirring up compassion in you? Uh, Jesus' compassion uh, creates action. 
not paralyzing fear. So uh, that's the question. What's stirring up compassion in you? A desire to do something to help somebody. What needs do you see the people in the people that you meet? Maybe another way to ask the question is, what, what are you trying to avoid? Uh, because the very thought of doing it is, scares you to death. What is it that you notice a lot? What, what is Jesus bringing to your attention continually? See, Jesus' compassion produces not only action, but it grows out of a nonstop noticing of needs. His compassion generates a relentless invitation to care for others. It's just something we can't get away from. And so the question is, what is it that you can't get away from? What need are you seeing? What people are you noticing? I want you to understand that you will not stop hearing the Holy Spirit say, you meet the need. So Jesus has replied to the disciples. They've come to him and said, please send these people away. Uh, I, I think it, there was probably more than one reason that they wanted them to go away. Uh, but... The, they, they said, please send these people away so they can get food. And Jesus said to them, you feed them. And the 12 answered, we only have five loaves of bread. By the way, do not think wonder bread. We're talking pita bread. Uh, we have five pitas and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. So, I'm going to pause again for, for a moment. Were they offering an excuse or were they making a confession? See, the same words, we don't have enough, can be either an excuse not to do anything or a confession that we need help to do something. Every disciple, when Jesus says to us, you meet that need, every one of us needs to come to the recognition that we don't have enough. I would go so far to say that if you have enough, the need you're sensing, noticing, isn't the need Jesus wants you to notice. If you can do it, keep looking. Left to ourselves, we do not have enough to meet the needs that we see in people. There are all kinds of needs. Now, our actions in response to the, this reality uh, that we don't have enough to meet the needs that Jesus reveals to us, that the reactions that we have, the actions we take in response to that will reveal whether we're making an excuse or 
making a confession. We make excuses primarily when we try to trim down Jesus' commands to fit our limited abilities. For example, Jesus commissions us to teach new disciples to obey everything he commanded. Many of us know that, uh, have memorized that verse from, from Matthew chapter 28. Go make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. That's what he said. We know that, but we have tended to trim it back until we merely teach our children to know what he commanded and kind of hope and pray that maybe by some slim chance they might possibly obey some of them. Now, knowing what Jesus commanded is essential. I mean, you can't obey something that you don't know. But simply knowing it isn't enough. Knowing that he, what he commanded is essential, but it's insufficient without obeying the commands. Jesus tells us to preach the good news, that he can be the king of our lives, but we cut the message uh, down to telling people they're sinners and need to say a prayer. Now, confessing our sins in prayer is essential, but it is insufficient unless we recognize that Jesus is our king and we begin to live like it. One more. One, one more example of the way we pare things down. Jesus says you will do greater things You've seen what I've been doing. That's what he tells us, tells us as his followers. You've seen what I've been doing. You will do greater things than I've been doing. But when it comes time to deciding as individuals and as a congregation, what are we going to do? We ask questions like, how much money do we have? That's not what Jesus said. We make confessions when we refuse to trim down Jesus' commands. And when we won't settle for things like teaching facts when we really want to see people obey Jesus' commands. Convincing somebody to be obedient to Jesus is a whole nother ball of wax than teaching people facts. Deciding what we can do based on the balance in our checkbook is a whole different thing than discerning what the Holy Spirit is asking us to do, regardless of what's in the bank account. So Jesus, in response to the disciples saying, we don't have it all, we got five pitas and a couple of fish. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples 
did so and everyone sat down. Have them sit down. So they did what they knew Jesus wanted them to do. I want you to hang on to that. That's a principle. If we are not making excuses, we start doing the thing that first thing Jesus tells us he wants us to do. It tells us that Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish and he looked up to heaven and he gave thanks and broke them. And then he gave them to, disciple, to the disciples to distribute to the people. Now, I'm not quite sure how he did it, but in my mind's eye, there's a row of 12 disciples coming up to Jesus. And he's breaking up the pita and breaking up the fish and hands some to the first disciple and to the second disciple. And the third guy gets there figuring there's nothing left. And Jesus hands him some. And the fourth guy and the fifth guy and the sixth guy and the seventh guy and the eighth guy and the ninth guy and the tenth guy and the eleventh guy and the twelfth guy gets up there going, there's no way there's going to be anything for me. And yet he gets plenty. And he goes to the first group of 50. And he starts handing out pita bread. And he gives pitas to everybody. And there's still pitas left. And he gives fish to everybody. And there's still fish left. And he goes to the next group of 50 and the next group of 50 and the next group of 50. And this is happening 12 times over. And they're all just going. Now, people in the crowd probably have no idea what's going on. Beyond the fact they're getting a free lunch. But the 12 disciples are going, five pitas, two fish. I've already handed out food to 100 people. How does this work? So what I want us to understand, the first principle that I think we ought to remember is that the disciples did what they knew Jesus wanted them to do. They had everybody sit down in groups of 50. The other thing is that Jesus doesn't want what we don't have. Jesus knows what we don't have. We don't really need to remind him of what we don't have. What he simply does, what Jesus does, is he simply asks us to give him what we do have. Hey guys, you got five little pitas and a couple fish? I don't know, maybe they're those big giant fish. Although I'm thinking if you're carrying five pitas, you don't have two giant fish. Probably more like two small fish. Jesus prayed and thanked God for what they had and what they had given to him, and he gave it back to them to distribute. And when they did, again, they did what they knew Jesus wanted them to do, and they gave out the food. So let's just stop for a moment. How do you make sense of Jesus' invitation to care for others? 
That's what personal ministry is. It's simply a matter of caring for other people in all kinds of different ways. What can you do when he asks you to serve as the answer to your prayers for these people? That's what he did for these guys, right? They notice these neat people are hungry. They come to Jesus. That's what prayer is. And then he says, you feed them. So what can you do when he asks you to serve as the answer to the prayer you've been praying? Here's the sermon in a sentence. When you do what you know to do, you can trust Jesus to do what only he can do. When you do what you know to do, you can trust Jesus to do what only he can do. Some of you have heard this all before and you know this story, but I'm going to tell the rest of the story for those who, who may not have heard this before or may have forgotten. Uh, they, the 5,000 men plus whoever, women and children who might have been there, they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. How can you make sense of Jesus' invitation to care for others? When you think, I don't have enough, is it a confession or is it an excuse? When he invites you to care for others, the first thing to do is go, what's the first step? What's the first thing you want me to do? Because when you do what you know to do, you can trust Jesus to do what only he can do. So there's a couple of lessons for us this morning. Uh, caring for others in Jesus' name requires big faith. Again, I'm going to say, if you can pull it off on your own, it's probably not what Jesus is asking you to do. If it does not look impossible, it's not what he's asking you to do. It might be what you're comfortable with, but it's not what he's asking you to do. He does this all the time. He asks us to do that. Do you want me? I'll just confession time. This is just us and everybody watching on the internet. <laughs> I am a fairly outgoing person, but I have a I have a low level of uh, enjoying meeting new people I've never met before. Like two or three, and then I'm done. Okay, now it's time to go home, right? And Jesus is going, no, you need, to go, you need to meet a whole lot more people than one or two. Oh. And then you need to find ways to become the, be friends to them and show them the love of Jesus and the things that you do and say and tell them about me. Wow. 
but you know how you wired me. I, <laughs> this conversation I've had with him, you know how you wired me. I'm an extroverted introvert. Nobody ever seems to believe me when I say that, but I really like being alone. And I really like being with people for a while. Hmm. So caring for others, caring for others for, for me, this is, this is my personal application. I don't know where yours is gonna go, but this is where mine goes. Caring for people enough to go meet them so that they have an opportunity to meet Jesus requires big faith for me. When we act in obedience to Jesus' command to, to feed them or meet their need, he'll take our, he'll multiply our limited resources and there will be more than enough. Okay, I'll just be honest with you. I started with, and, and, and now I have this much. I'm finding that as I get out and have the opportunity to meet people that, the more I meet people, the more I'm actually enjoying this. I haven't yet to have anybody spit in my face, which is, you know, that's a, that's a thrill. <laughs> to not have it happen, okay? When Jesus invites you into some kind of personal ministry, of some way of loving people in his name and serving them, do you do what you know to do and what you know how to do and trust him to do what only he can do? Second thing, lesson we can take from this, Jesus has to issue the invitation. I... If you decide that you're going to go, if the 12 disciples had decided we're going to feed these 5,000 people with five peters and two fish and not consulted Jesus about what his plan was, there would have been a whole lot of disappointed people in the 5,000. See, when you decide that you're going to do something great for God, you're on your own. I'd say good luck, but, well, there's no such thing as luck in the kingdom. There's either a blessing or falling flat on your face. If you decide to go feed uh, 5,000 with your sack lunch, you're on your own. But if Jesus tells you to go do it, it's on him. When he invites you to leave your comfort and your security, do the first thing you know that you need to do. Do what you know how to do and trust Jesus to do what only he can do. So many times we want to know for certain exactly how things are going to work out down the road like 14 years from now before we take the first step. I'm going to remind you of a guy named Abraham whose assignment from God was to move from the only home he'd ever known to pack up his family and all of his belongings and go 
to a place I will show you. Jesus calls us to take the very first step to a place that he will show us, to a result that he will show us. He drops hints. He gives us indications. He even makes promises. And, well, big faith is crazy enough to believe that if he promises that we're going to get there. We tend to huddle in our routines of comfort and security. We avoid anything that stretches our faith and challenges us to act differently, to act outside of what we can do. But see, when Jesus invites us to leave our comfort and security, we really need to say yes. When we say yes, it builds big faith in our hearts. We, we can trust Jesus to do what he, only he can do. So, some practical things, some first steps. The very first thing I would suggest to you is that you pray about the needs you see around you. In fact, maybe the first step is to say, Holy Spirit, help me notice Help me notice people. I may not have any idea why you're pointing them out to me, but just help me notice people. Pray that you'll be able to notice them. Pray that when you notice them, you'll begin to bring their needs to Jesus. I don't know if they're hungry or what the deal is, Lord, but I want to bring them to you. I notice that person. I notice that person meet their needs pray for the people that you know that you know need Jesus pray for loved ones and family members and relatives and friends and acquaintances and co-workers and neighbors and if you have people in your life that you know don't know Jesus pray for them so that's the first thing pray pray because you're not sure, I want you to pray. Everybody can do this. Pray. Talk to Jesus. Second thing, listen for Jesus' invitation. Because as you're praying for people, as you're noticing people, as you're praying for them, the moment's going to come when he says, I want you to meet this need. Listen for his invitation to join him. Pray, listen, give Jesus your limited resources. Give him your sack lunch. Give him your five pitas and two fish. Okay, some of you are thinking that's way more than you have. So give him your pita and your tail of a fish. But give it to him. Pray, listen, give and then do what you can do. Pray, listen, give, do, trust Jesus. Trust Jesus to do what only he can do. What will you do? You cast the deciding vote.
You cast the deciding vote on whether or not you're going to build big faith by caring for people in personal ministry. So the question is, what will you do? Will you act in faith? Will you say yes to Jesus' invitation to join him in caring for other people? What will you do? Let me pray for you. King Jesus, you are the God of the impossible. Nothing is impossible for you. There's nothing that you have asked us to do that is impossible because you make it possible for us. Some of us are praying for the needs we see and, and the people we know who need you. And I ask that for those of us who are doing that, that you would invite us out of our comfort and security because we want to join you in the Father's work of restoring their trust in Him. We want to be part of helping them to know the truth about who you really are. Others of us are listening for your invitation, wondering what impossible thing are you going to ask us to do? Okay, it's, to be honest, some of us are going, I sure hope he doesn't ask me to do that. For whatever the case, all of us are a little bit nervous. We are not naturally comfortable with the unknown. Heavenly Father, you are God Almighty. And so when the challenges seem too big for us, remind us of your resurrection power that raised Jesus to live forever. Remind us that we can do anything. That you can do anything. That you can do far more than we could ever imagine or guess or request in our wildest dreams. Don't let us forget that you don't work by pushing us around, but by working in us. Holy Spirit, fill us with Jesus' powerful love as you work deeply and gently through us to meet the needs of the people that we meet and see around us. Amen. Thanks for watching or for being here. Uh, with us. Appreciate it greatly. Um, quick reminder, on the evening of the very first resurrection day, Jesus came and stood among his disciples who were hiding from the authorities, and they rejoiced when they saw him. We have had the opportunity. Jesus stood amongst us and stands amongst us right now. As we have been here in this time of worship, wherever we are, he is with us, and we can rejoice because we've meet, met with him. And Jesus says to his disciples, both past and present, peace be with you. Just as the Father sent me, I also send you. He breathes on us and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit fills us with Jesus' love and his power.
Folks, wherever you are, you are sent. Come on here. Go!